This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Josh Nugent started his successful guiding operation, Out Fly Fishing Outfitters, in 2003. He recently purchased a fly shop in Calgary, Alberta, adding to his already impressive resume. I met Josh years ago during a filming project on the Bow River. He was my first guide and single-handedly changed how I look at professionalism in the fishing industry. Not only am I proud to announce Josh as one of Anchored Outdoors' masterclass instructors, but I'm excited to introduce him to many of you here. He's a fountain of knowledge and you're guaranteed to walk away from this episode learning something new. In this episode of Anchored, we discuss Josh's master's thesis on eye tracking and the visual characteristics of expert flycasters. We also discuss the latest conservation concern around the Grassy Mountain Coal Mine Project, whether or not to buy a fly shop, and more. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Watermaster. I've been using my Watermaster for nearly 15 years now, and I come to appreciate it more each year. The Watermaster folds into an extremely compact package, and its frameless design allows for complete assembly and disassembly in under 10 minutes. Whether it be for a simple day of fishing on a Skeena tributary, or a week-long fly-in trip in the remote mountains of BC, the Watermaster has always been the one tool necessary to make it all happen. You can find more information at www.bigskyinflatables.com. I was born and raised in Calgary, Alberta, just about 40 years ago now. That's a bit of a hard pill to swallow. <laughs> That's coming up this month for me. Are um, we really that old now? Uh, I wish I could blame this on just you and not myself. But yeah, <laughs> I feel like I'm I'm leading you on this one. So I guess I'm, I got to take that bullet. 
Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? And it's, isn't it crazy when you see people that are now becoming prominent in the industry that like you saw them learning to tie a fly or casting a rod when they were really little kids and now they have an active role in the industry. And you're like, I feel old. I yeah, didn't want to I feel old, but I do. <laughs> it's <laughs> funny because Catherine, you know, Catherine Laflamme yeah. and her boyfriend, Dimitri, yeah, I mean, I was teaching both those kids how to cast when they were like mm-hmm. barely teenagers, and and now they're like leading, they're forging the way. It's surreal. I know she's an assistant manager at M and Y, and I still yeah. call there. And the running joke I've had since I've known her when she worked for you is that, like, why is Tim being forced to babysit these <laughs> children there? And she gets so annoyed with me. But I mean, yeah, like. She was that little intern that started helping you. And I mean, how old was she when she started that? 15, 16? Oh, I think she, so I, t- I had taken her guiding. No, I had met her when she was, I think, 14. And okay. then her dad for her 16th birthday bought a guy to trip with me. And then gotcha. for her 17th, she had bought me through Groupon. I had her like a Groupon special at the time. Yeah. And then after that, she hit me up for a job and I hired her. Gotcha. Well, yeah. that was a smart hire. She's a she's a smart kid. She's a really yeah. smart. I guess she's not much of a kid anymore. I definitely call her a baby in diapers and always do that. If she answers the phone, I'm like, wait a minute, this is a daycare? I thought I was calling a fly shop. <laughs> so mad at me right away. But yeah. On that note, you own a fly shop. Um, so just before we really step back and, and start to pick through your timeline, do you want to just let everybody know what your fly shop is? Because I'm sure a lot of people know of your shop, even though they may not know you at this point. Yeah. So out Fly Fishing Outfitters is our fly shop. This, we're just about at the end of our sixth year now. Um, had the guide service with the same name for 15 years previous to that. The guide service was just kind of to put myself through my undergrad and graduate degrees. And then it just kind of kept going because it was the perfect off season of coaching college basketball. I could still do this in the spring, summer and into the fall. And and then it just kind of kept growing and growing. And then I accidentally bought a fly shop. Don't ever... Raise if you don't mean it. Um, <laughs> so that was that was not planned. I talked to so many people. They're like, "Oh, I totally knew you were going to do that." And I'm like, "Well, you couldn't have because I didn't know until I pretty much signed on the dotted line." So, um, yeah, I never saw myself having a fly shop, running a fly shop, and now here I am. What's the story leading up to that? And just to provide some context to people listening right now, we met. Through, when we were filming Fly Nation back in the day. And I just remember... <laughs> nine. Okay. And I remember Pujit yeah. calling me and he was like, okay, so we're going to film an episode on the bow. Um, we're going to go out with this guide. And I think at the time I was... Yeah, that's right. Trying, I'm try, It's all coming back to me now because I was like, well, hang on. Who's this guide? Because I don't want to appear on camera like I need a guide. I mean, obviously, I know what I'm doing. You know, I'm yeah. so proud back then. And uh, and so I was a little bit hesitant. And then I met you and I went, oh, he's amazing. You were like immediately accepted into our crew, if you will. And it it's kind of stayed that way since. Yeah. So before we get to Fly Nation days, let's just start with you as a little young lad. Because I don't really know much about you before Fly Nation. So um, tell me the story. How did you get into fishing? So I was very fortunate in that um, my dad and my granddad and my uncles fished. Um, And so I was fishing 
when I was walking type thing. Like I, I think the first time that I was fishing was two or three years old. And my dad was a school teacher, but his background was in zoology. Um, and so we grew up outside and I mean, every weekend we were camping somewhere and fishing or hiking in the fall, we were out hunting places, you know, in the summertime we were gone basically the whole summer. We'd come home a couple times a summer to make sure the house hadn't burnt down. And then we were off again. And because he was a school teacher, we had the whole summer that we could just camp and fish and and spend so much time in the outdoors and then we ended up getting a farm when I was a little bit older kind of that junior high age and it was when I was six years old I was on the sheep river so my dad did his master's thesis at the Gorge Creek University Station and so the sheep river was always something that was very kind of close and, and near and dear to his heart and the name of our farm Sun Gala she livestock and tree came from the name of the mountain that he woke up every morning and would look at um, out at that Gorge Creek station. And so we used to fish there when I was a super little kid and, you know, wasn't catching much, but spent lots of time out on the water and had lots of fun. And I think my uncle took a lesson at a fly shop in town at Country Pleasures, which was the only shop back then. And he learned how to cast a fly rod. And so he brought a fly rod out. So my dad had taken up bow hunting. My uncle took up fly fishing and then they taught each other. And so the first time my brother and I are on the river with my uncle, we see them fly fishing. And I mean, if you've got a push button reel and you're watching somebody fly fishing, it was just one of those immediate, that's way cooler than what I'm doing. I need to go try that. And it was just one of those, like, I loved it. And I've always had that, attention span of what somebody called it an epileptic flea one of my clients told me that once um i like to say a chipmunk that abuses red bull is probably inaccurate description but fly fishing for me was just so much more engaging than just this push button reel where i pushed it and made this cast and you know growing up my brother was a way better angler than i was because he was way more patient than i was i became a better caster because I'll never forget, we were on the side of the Bow River and we were down actually by where the highwood comes in and the fishing had been slow. My uncle would cover ground and my brother and I would just kind of park places. And so we hadn't seen him in hours. And I started thinking like, I feel like I'm, I'm again, I'm seven years old. I'm thinking, I think I'm casting a pretty decent distance, but I don't know how far it is when it's out on the water. So I started casting up on the bank, laid the rod down, and then I'm pacing it off with my feet. Because growing up on the farm, I knew that, you know, your boot print is basically a foot long. And so I would just pace it off. I'm like, cool, that one was 40 feet. (laughs) Cast again. And I remember, again, being like a seven-year-old kid that made the comment to my brother, like, man, the fish is pretty slow, eh? And he looks at me and goes, moron, you're casting on the bank. Of course you're not catching anything. I remember thinking, that's a solid point. That's probably got something to do with it, you know, because, and that's why I love fly fishing though, that it was, it was engaging. It was busy. It was involved. It kept my little squirrel brain busy. And so the casting was as much fun as the fishing was. And so it just kind of grew from there. And the bow was one of those places that had a big influence on me growing up fishing I'll never forget a day like in that same spot. We used to go down to the where the highwood comes into the bow a fair bit. And my brother and I were there by ourselves. And we watched this guy walk by us, go up the bank. And he left and he went upstream somewhere. And like 15 minutes later, he was coming back down. 
I was still sitting on the bank trying to tie uh, a blood knot. I used to hate blood knots so much, and they would take me so long. As this guy's walking by, the little kid thing to do, right? Like, hey, mister, you catch any fish? And he's like, yeah, lots. And I'm like, you got lots? What do you mean lots? Like, tell me about this lots. And so he explained, you know, he told us how many he caught. I don't recall how many he said, but it was a bunch of fish. And I was like, holy smokes, what'd you catch him on? And he's like, nymphs. And I'm like, cool, what kind of dry flies are those? Because <laughs> it's all I knew. It's the only thing I'd ever <laughs> thrown at the time was a dry fly. And so this total stranger took the time to sit down on the bank beside my brother and I, opened up his fly box, and showed us a bunch of nymphs. Now, he probably gave us half a dozen to maybe 10 flies for a, like a six to eight year old kid and my brother was a year and a half older than i was we were tying our own flies like that was two weeks worth of work that he had just given me and so like this blew my mind that somebody gave me that many flies and i can tell you straight up because of that guy i have given away thousands of flies since i got into the industry because that guy did that for my brother and i so I have no idea who that is. If I ever oh. met that man, it would be really cool to me to ever find out who that was. Because this is going back like 33, 34 years ago, somewhere in there. No idea who it was. But because of him, that was one of the motivations even like during the quarantines when we did that flies for kids with the shop where we said like, nominate a kid and we'll send him free flies in the mail. We send out thousands of free flies and that thought process for me started with whoever that stranger was that took the time to show my brother and i and he actually even took us upstream to the first island and showed us how to nymph that was before anyone was using actual strike indicators and you would just take a piece of wool and tie it to the leader and then put floating on it and you know that was the first time we'd ever seen someone nymph and he caught like three or four fish in a matter of minutes in front of us and we were just like this guy wasn't lying about lots. There's a lot of fish in here. We're like, a fish was a good day, right? And he's catching a bunch of fish in a few minutes. And so that was this kind of like, wow. So if you actually learn, you can be better. And, and so that was that was really interesting. And it it just kind of went into in junior high. You know, I I got into coaching at a very young age because at the little rural school that I grew up at there was no one that would coach the basketball team. So I didn't get to play basketball in grade seven or grade eight because no one would coach our team. So I started coaching the grade four, five, six kids. And I started coaching through junior high. When I got to high school, I coached the junior high kids. When I got to college, I started coaching the high school kids. When I graduated, I started coaching college basketball. That was why I ended up going to university for my degrees. And so teaching and coaching was always something that was so kind of near and dear to me. And when I first moved from Red Deer and like the area that my parents' farm is in, and I was moving to Calgary to finish my undergrad and my graduate degrees there, it was the first time in my life I didn't have a bunch of job offers already in front of me because I'd always been in a local area where if you could work hard, you had a job. And there was always five or six people there. Like, if you ever need a job, man, just come see me. And now all of a sudden I moved to this city with a million people. And I was like, how do you find a job here? And my mom laughed at me. He's like, you moron, you pick up a newspaper. You go to the classifieds, you look under jobs. I was like, really? And I did. And I found a job at a fly shop at Wholesale Sports back in the day. And that was the first time in my life I hadn't worked a hard labor job. I grew up on a farm and I 
I'd done landscaping jobs. I'd done grunt jobs. I'd never done anything but manual labor. And now all of a sudden I was working in a fly shop and I went from that college basketball life where, I mean, our team was together seven days a week. We trained six hours a day because you were in the gym for three hours a day. And then we had practices. And then outside of that, like we were together just about 24 seven. And I mean, my roommates were guys from the team. And so it was, it was weird to go from spending so much time in one sport and I came to Calgary and then I wasn't going to play basketball at UFC. And it was like, well, what do I do with my time? And all of that time and energy just kind of got thrust right into fly fishing. And so my learning curve on fly fishing, like just took off. And I mean, I had been fly fishing for 15 plus years before that, but I probably learned more in the first 15 months after emerging myself into it every day than I had in the, I probably learned more in the first 15 weeks than I had in the previous 15 years. Right. Like when you really immerse yourself in something like that. So like I, I was learning so much. And then all of the, the guys that I worked with, I shouldn't say all of some were super supportive. Some were absolutely the opposite, but there were some really supportive people there that were like, you need to start guiding. And I'm like, well, I don't know how to guide. Like, it's exactly what you do with all those new people, except you would get paid for it. I'm like, what do you mean? And they're like, you know how you take new people all the time? I'm like, yeah. And you know how you teach them all the time? Yeah. You know how you tie their flies on for them and you show them how to do everything? I'm like, yeah, that's guiding. I'm like, no, I've never guided. I don't know how to do that. They're like, oh, let's start over. Right. (laughs) And so eventually I got there and it was from the encouragement of these guys that I worked with and some of them that had been guides in Fernie and had done a lot of work. There was a guy, George Watt, that was. I learned more about fly fishing from him than anyone else I had up to that point in my life. And he taught me so much. He was a big Stillwater guy that came from BC. Like he worked at Tunkwa Lake, you know where Tunkwa is? Mm -hmm. I assumed with the Stillwater (laughs) world that you're far more familiar (laughs) with than I am. Um, So he taught me so much about Stillwater, but he also taught me a lot about guiding and getting into the industry and things to do there and encouraged me. And I, bought a boat and just went, well, what the heck, I guess let's try it. And that was what I did my next summer to, to start paying for university. And then that paid for my undergrad and graduate degrees. And I got through both of those without taking out a penny in student loans because I didn't take any holidays in the summertime. I just worked. And so that was what paid for school. And then once I started actually working and I was working at the university and I was coaching and I was teaching, I could still guide all summer long I could guide all spring and then um, even into the fall it was challenging with the coaching but at the university I was at like our practices were at nine o'clock at night so I could still guide during the day and then just get to the gym for the evenings and so that was kind of where it all evolved from and then I accidentally bought a fly shop yeah. <laughs> well because I think even when I knew you or when we met you were still doing the gym at night, right? Like yeah. I recall driving I with you and going by the gym or you had to go to the gym. I just yeah. remember it still being a, a big part of your life. Yeah, I was still coaching all the time then. And that would have been when I was still coaching at college. So, I mean, that was a big time commitment that I spent. Like I probably averaged 75 to 80 hours a week with it. There were certain times a year, um, the league that we were in the fall semester wasn't as busy like it is um, at some schools or some leagues, January through April was our busy time. And so that allowed me to kind of 
they'll keep guiding into the fall, which for us, September, October is such a big window for guiding here for sure that it it was really helpful for me to be able to keep doing that and kind of put that money away to be able to get through the winter because coaching in Canada isn't exactly like coaching south of the border <laughs> where you can no. hang out. It's like, oh, that's nice you're volunteering. And here's yeah. a little stipend <laughs> that will cover a portion of the gas money to get to the gym every day. So, you know, I did it because I loved it. But that's where, I mean, that was where my kinesiology degree came in. That was where the coaching, the teaching people, all of that fly fishing was just like guiding was just coaching fly fishing. So it was such an easy transition for me to make because I had invested so heavily in how to become a better instructor, how to become a better coach. And now I was just coaching a different sport. And so that's, that's all fly fishing was for me. And it's why I also dove so much into the, the casting and, and being a casting instructor and not just someone who can show you how to cast but I enjoyed the learning aspect of that. And I mean, then my intention for my master's was just so that I could be more marketable as a coach. Because if I was half the age of the other coaches, I needed to be twice as marketable. If I could teach and coach, there was a better chance I would get hired. I never expected to get hired at a university before I actually had finished my master's. And so that was kind of like, well, which like the chicken just, came before the egg or I, I don't know where the cart's in front of the horse. I didn't know what to do. And then that's where I took the opportunity to do my master's instead of doing it in sports psychology and coaching, which was the plan. I ended up having an opportunity to do my master's thesis on the visual characteristics of expert fly casters. It's so cool. I love which, this. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting and it was a really neat opportunity and to do that study and all of that actually stemmed from the fact that I was taking an undergrad course with the the prof that became my supervisor and you know it, it was a three-hour night class on Wednesday nights and I remember on one of the the breaks in the class she asked me you know have you thought of what you want to do for a project like for a skill because we had to do basically like a mini thesis where you get a group of four and you had one semester to do it in and I mentioned fly fishing she's like that would work great and she was talking about how her son had helped out with a group the previous semester because they looked at fly fishing and he was used as an expert because he's been out with this guide and this guide knows so much. She's going on and on about my son is so qualified because he went with this guide and this guide's the best guide and she's going on and on. And it was really awkward because I was the guide. <laughs> and I was like, well, he's not that good. I know the guy. She's like, no, no, my son. And she's going on and on. And I'm just like, this is getting awkward and uncomfortable. And I'm like, oh, well, he's, he's just a dude. <laughs> well, actually, I need to tell you something about this real quick before we go on. Because uh, I do want to do a deep dive into your into your thesis. You were my first real guide. We were in the boat together. You took out like your I just remember you opening your fly box and me being dumbfounded that there could even be a box with that many flies in it. And you were explaining and then you would like, you just, you were a real guide and I had never seen it before. And you definitely looked like a hero in a lot of ways. So I can see where that guy was coming from because I mean, I was even in the, I was even in the fishing industry then and you absolutely knocked my socks off. So I will attest to that, that you are, (laughs) you know what you're doing. I appreciate that. 
And you know what's funny is about three days ago, I found an old hard drive that I was trying to find footage for the the coal mine stuff that we're going to talk about later. Um, I found that Fly Nation shoot. That's why I remember it was 2009. And I have a picture of exactly what you're talking about. Me holding that big streamer box open and you're casting off the bow. And it was PC that took the picture out of the back of the boat. So it's funny because as you said that, I... I remember that moment vividly because I was reminded of it only a couple of days ago. And that's, that's, that's quite a while ago, that first. It is. And it's so, it was so polarizing too, because I was really, that was a different April, right? Like I was young and stupid and very unprofessional. And I look back now, no, no, you weren't, you were a total pro, but it was very, I just remember leaving that trip with my head hung, like hanging my head because it was just an embarrassment on my part. But I remember looking at me and you and going, okay, okay, the bar has been set. So it, look, that, that trip um, and, and the way that you conducted yourself and your professionalism and your skill, it really did set the bar for my career. So I appreciate that. So Thank you. And um, go ahead and just like delete that hard drive. Just like toss it in the bin. (laughs) (laughs) I'll share that photo for you. You know what? But that, that trip was amazing because it was supposed to be just while you guys were out here for the grand opening of Bass Pro, I told Pujik, I'm like, dude, if you're in my town, you're coming out on the water. Like I'm taking you fishing. And he's like, sure. And I'll never forget. He called me back and said, Hey, do you mind if I bring some cameras? And he's like, if you're not comfortable, it's totally cool. Like it, it, it doesn't matter. We don't have to bring them. I'm like, I don't care, man. Like I've, I've had cameras in the boat. We've done different TV shows. Like it doesn't bother me at all. If you want to do that. And he's like, it's no big deal. It's nothing like structured or anything. <laughs> no, it and wasn't. And <laughs> then it just kind of morphed into this when he shows up. It was like, well, okay, by the way, this is the first episode of Fly Nation. And here's the crew. And then at the end of the day, like everybody came back for dinner. Remember I lost the keys to my truck? I, I do remember. Sliding down when we had to winch the boats up that snow embankment because there was that huge ice shelf and we had to winch it, you know, 100 yards back to the trailer. And the keys fell out of my pocket, so then we had to have somebody bring oh, like the things that were a cluster, but it was such a good group of people. And then when I went out and we fished together in Niagara, and I mean with PC there and Nauto was there and Pujik and Myers and who else? Yoshi was there, and just I had never been around such a talented group of people where there weren't egos. And I'd been around some really talented people in the industry. And I'd, you know, been on shows with some people that were unbelievably talented and some with big egos and some with no egos. But I'd never been around a group that was just so enjoyable to be around, that had such a positive energy, that weren't talking a bunch of smack about other people and weren't trying to like talk other people down to make themselves feel good. They just like you would hear stories of people like just celebrating other people around the industry. And it was so much fun, but there was such a skill set there that it was like, you know, looking at Pujik and Nauto and their photography, like I was so fortunate to learn from photographers like that. And I remember just thinking like, remember that first time going down the hill, I was carrying my body weight in like 
extra weights for the camera booms. And I'm like, just be as useful as you can because I want to get invited back to anything that happens because this is just such an amazing group of people. And to think that, you know, we're 15 years later and, you know, Naoto and I see each other virtually every day. You know, I talk to Pujik all the time. We still stay in contact. Like Yoshi, you see all the time and worked with on the master class for this still. Like, you know, Myers, I talked to earlier today. Like it's, it's so cool that that group of people in that course still stayed in contact. And I love the fact that Pujik brought us together and he gave us a reason. And there's so many things that we all would do so differently if we had a second go, right? Yeah. So many things. But the fact of the matter is it still started there for so many of us where like so many people had no idea who Outfly Fishing Outfitters was until Pujik started the Fly Nation stuff, right? And, and the stuff that he did with Canadian Fly Fisher Magazine. And like, he gave us all the sounding board that he created personalities and he introduced us to the industry. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's so many people that had a deeper skill set, had been in the industry longer and just weren't necessarily given the same opportunities that some of us had. And you see lots of us. We also know a lot of people that came on a bunch of those shoots and had the same opportunities and, you know, they they didn't stay in the industry for even a season. So like there's people that were given the opportunities, but there's no such thing as a silver platter that remains forever, right? Like at some point you still got to put the legwork in or it just, it doesn't last. Yeah. It's so, so true. You know, what you created and built is, is a pretty cool thing. You've jumped outside of this little fly fishing niche that we all hold so near and dear, but the stuff that you've done with TV appearances that they're not fly fishing related at all. And that opened up fly fishing to so much of the world and opened up the industry that was, you and I both know what it was like. Our clients were white haired men. Like, and our industry was only catering to retired men and to, you know, put this new face on the industry that you don't have to have old <laughs> wrinkled skin and, and white hair to fly fish. You can be of any age of any gender. Like this is for everybody. And you got so many young women involved. Like you had a, so much to do with that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Let's bring this back to you. So let's talk about this master's thesis, because I think this is one of the most interesting things that I've ever heard. So, um, I'd like to do a bit of a deep dive into it, if that's okay. Sure. This episode might yep. go on for a while. <laughs> yeah. We're going to have chapters. Yeah. Day two. <laughs> um, so it was an eye-tracking study where I was looking at the visual characteristics of expert flycasters and then how manipulating attentional focus affects outcome accuracy. So whether they were focusing internally on their own body movements or focusing externally on the target. And there's that internal versus external paradigm that's been studied a fair bit in other sports and in attentional focus, um, and just trying to see, is it more conducive to accuracy? Are you going to be more accurate if you focus on your target, or are you going to be more accurate if you focus on you know, your own body movements? There's, it's interesting. If you ask my supervisor, she would say that my thesis was about attentional focus. If you ask me and anyone else that's heard of it, they're like, oh yeah, he did his thesis on fly fishing, (laughs) right? And so it's very different. The attention of focus thing came down to the whole idea that 
you know, like we're looking at a computer monitor right now because of COVID, we can't sit in the same room. So, you know, I can see you, but right now, even though I see you're making eye contact with the monitor, you could be planning what you're making for dinner for your family tonight. I can't remember the time zone difference, whether it would be lunch right now or dinner. But right, you can hold your focus, like your eyes can stay somewhere and your attention can go somewhere else, right? But in order for you to move your eyes, your attention has to move as well. I can't move my eyes somewhere without my brain saying, send my eyes to a spot, right? And so trying to understand how that links, is that going to cause delays? And so if there's something very quick, like accuracy, when you're trying to deliver a fly quickly to a target, if I'm focusing on my internal movements instead of just keeping my focus of attention on the target, then, you know, am I going to delay that or make it more difficult for me to do that? The analogy with the whole eye tracking and the attentional focus that I use for a lot of people is basically your eyes are what gives your brain the coordinates to what you need to hit. Think about like, I hate to use the analogy, but a missile that you can launch over an entire ocean, it can land at a pinpoint location. If you enter the coordinates, what happens so often. And when I was looking at their, the data of all the participants that were casting, and I use mostly just master certified casting instructors, they're wearing a set of glasses that had one camera lens that would sit right between their eyes, that that camera just saw the scene. So whatever they're looking at, it captured the scene. There was another camera that reflected off a prism or a monocle into their eye with an illuminator light. And based on pupil edge detection um, and corneal reflection, you can tell where the fovea is. The fovea is the point in your eye that has the highest concentration of photoreceptors and are only place that we have acute vision. So your peripheral vision is not detailed. It's fuzzy, right? The only place that you have acute vision is whatever falls on the fovea. So once we calibrated someone's eye when they were wearing this eye tracker, once they looked at a grid, they would stare at a nine-point grid, and I'd tell them, look at point one. And then when they looked at it, I would tell the computer, they're now looking at point one. Look at point two. While they looked at that point, we'd tell the computer, they're now looking at Once you calibrated their eye on that nine-point grid, we would see kind of like the split screen you and I are looking at right now. On the left-hand side, I would see whatever they were looking at. That was the scene image that came from that camera on the middle of the glasses, just a regular small camera that captured the scene. And then I would also see their eyeball. And on the right-hand side, um, I would see their casting movements that was captured from just a regular external camera. So they were linked perfectly in time so that you could see where they were in the cast and what their eyes were looking at at that same time. So while they were casting on top of the scene image, there was a little red cursor that showed where their eyes were actually looking at. And the funny thing was, is I had a lot of male casters and we're recording in the Jack Simpson gym. There was a running track up above in that gym and girls would run by. I don't have to tell you. Like, it's being recorded. And so when you watch her run by, that that's, yeah, we see that. <laughs> it's kind of funny. <laughs> but so I, I got to see exactly what they were looking at and how early they found the target. One of the big things that we found, the earlier they found the target, the more likely they were to hit the target. It sounds obvious. But it's not like back to that analogy of launching the missile. What happens if you launch the missile, but you haven't put any coordinates in? 
it's no longer accurate. Just because the flight path has the potential to be accurate doesn't mean it will be if you haven't given it proper coordinates of where to go, right? That's why I was looking at master certified casting instructors because they had a certification that said their mechanics should be true, right? They should be able to have a path that flies true. So why were some of them hitting two and three targets out of 20 and some of them hitting 18 and 19 targets out of 20? Because they all had a certification that says your mechanics are top-notch to the point that you understand mechanics so much, we trust you to teach other people mechanics, right? So why was there such a huge discrepancy? I saw a huge discrepancy in what they did with their eyes. The ones that were hitting 18 and 19 targets out of 20 found their target and locked on their target early and held it rock steady on the target. The people that really struggled either did not look at the target until the point that they'd already deliver their final forecast. Once their rod had come to a stop, you and I both know at the point that your rod comes to a stop, the direction of travel is already decided, right? It's the whole reason we can do a reach cast. I can move where the line lands, but it's not going to change where the fly lands. And that was the first time that their eyes actually went to the target. The rest of the time they tried to track the fly in the air or what they would do is they had tried to reference everything in their visual field. So their eyes would jump from the target to the edge of the paper, to the far side, to the near target, to the edge of the paper. And it was just moving so quickly. Your brain doesn't have, like your brain doesn't process information if it's under 100 milliseconds. It's why the old like subliminal messaging used to work where they'd put pictures of like popcorn or soft drinks in movies. They could put it in two frames a video and you would, you wouldn't see it. Your brain wouldn't tell you you saw it, but it kind of had picked something up and you would all of a sudden be thirsty or all of a sudden crave popcorn. You know, if you haven't given your brain a proper look, where is this location in space? How are you supposed to hit it? Right? So that's what the best casters were doing is they found the target early and they locked their eyes on that target and they gave their brain the coordinates of where's the target in space. That is amazing, by the way. This is so fascinating. I have 10 million questions. <laughs> well, and I like them. It's funny because I really enjoy guys like Jeff Wagner, uh, who we really geek out on casting and, and have had these conversations with him. Um, I, I can nerd out on casting far more than anyone should, I'm sure. But I, I really enjoyed it. And the other thing that kind of happened accidentally i had to analyze every single frame of data so for an hour and 10 minutes of each of these 11 casters i had to look at every single frame of data and account for where their eye was and what it was doing was it an eye movement was it a fixation on the target were they pursuit tracking which means they're tracking a moving object was it a blink was it a saccade saccade is just a fancy term for eye movement I had to classify what it was doing and where it was. Was it on target? How many degrees off target was it? How long did it stay on the target? And, and run all of those things. But what had nothing to do with my thesis was the fact that the other side of that screen was me watching the mechanics of some of the top casters in the world and breaking down their mechanics one frame at a time and I spent thousands of hours analyzing data. So it's not like when I tell someone, you know, I enjoy working with, 
you know, casting and I, I love doing casting instruction with people and I want to help someone be a better caster. It's not that like, yes, I've taught a few thousand people how to cast a fly rod and that's obviously learned. I've also spent thousands of hours analyzing literally one frame at a time some of the best casters in the world and their casting strokes. I mean, you had guys like Tim Rajeff, who ha- is fine with me sharing his name as one of the participants of the study and someone I became good friends with because Tim has a master's in plastics, you know, in engineering. And that's why he's worked with fly lines and got into building rods. And he has that type of brain that he totally geeked out over this. And as a grad student, I was used to being treated like six steps below dirt like that's where you exist as a grad student and now you've got one of the greatest casters on the planet that is calling me up and he's giddy like a little schoolgirl, and he's like i did the stuff that you said and i was casting better and he talked to me like he phoned me up when he went down to iftd and he's like i got the first ever perfect score in the accuracy event i'm like are you kidding me he's like yeah i got the first ever perfect score and all i was thinking about was all the eye stuff that we talked about i focused on the eyes and i nailed it and i'm like that's amazing he's like and then i got a perfect score in the second round i'm like are you kidding me he's like it had never been done and i did it twice and i'm like so you won the competition he's like well about that no i actually didn't i was like what (laughs) he's like the third round where you had to cast your loop through the hoop which is normally one of the easier parts of it. He said that because the loop was hanging and he could see people walking in the background behind it, he lost track of where he should look and he got really distracted by the people walking in the background and he messed up the easiest part of the competition and didn't win it after getting a perfect score twice when it had never been done before. But as a you know, I don't know, whatever I was, 20, somewhere between 20 and 22 at that age, being a grad student and hearing someone like that excited and actually telling me, like, there was two of them sitting talking together, Tim, Tim and uh, another one of the MCIs that said, you know, I've taught people for a living for decades. You're the first person that's made me a better caster in years. And I was just like, what? <laughs> Like it was one of those like head shake moments where like, say that again, I helped you. Like I, all I did is kind of analyze data and, and report back to you. And so that was really, really cool for me. And it got me even more excited about helping people with casting and wanting to make people better casters because I mean, I saw the same thing from coaching basketball. It's really easy to improve the skill set of a five-year-old kid that's never touched a ball before right? Because there's so much room for growth. I loved coaching a college team because you had to work so much harder to get growth because they had already worked on so many things. They were already getting closer to their ceiling of what the potential that you could get out of them and trying to maximize that potential is great, but it's so much harder. And so from the casting standpoint to have a Tim Rajeff, you know, that was saying, you help me be a better caster. It's like, so how could you not help someone who's never picked up a rod before? Right. And, and so that's one of the things that I've always really enjoyed, but from a guiding standpoint, like Nauto and I talk about this all the time and, and Kosh as well, because Kosh is another guy that like the three of us really enjoy kind of geeking out over casting and like, how can we make everyone that steps foot in the boat a better caster at the end of the day. And 
I mean, trout fishing is a lot easier than say steelhead fishing or guiding to try and know that you delivered fish at the end of the day. But we know that that's out of our control. What's in our control and how do we really focus on the stuff that's in our control? And casting was one of those things that always did that for me. And so if the fishing was really tough, hey, do you want to work on trying to get a double haul down? And when somebody was like, yes, and all of a sudden it clicked for them and they got it. Or to take someone that came into your boat and they're like, yeah, I fish a lot. You know, it's like, this is probably the 30th day I've been guided this year in 10 different countries. You know, I, I know young guides and even myself, when I was a young guide, you hear something like that and you're like, you're kind of puckered and you're like, Oh, should I say anything? And the reality is they wouldn't hire you if they didn't have the interest in learning from you. So open your mouth and be a guide. Don't just be, you know, a monkey on the oars that rose down the river and listens to their stories of their last fishing adventure, like help them. And that was my challenge is how do I make every angler a better angler? Some people you can really improve their skill set in terms of, you know, whether it's their fishing skills and fishing knowledge. But there's a lot of people that I would start getting that they were such experienced anglers that there wasn't a lot of like fishing knowledge that you can. Yes, they wanted your local knowledge of fish sit here on this river and this is a good run and this is not, and, you know, and that kind of local knowledge. But that's a given that any guide should be able to do to try and set yourself apart. It was how do I make everybody a better angler overall everything not just well he showed me how to catch a fish here or you know he rode the boat really really hard so that i got two casts in that spot whereas i would normally only get one and and casting was one of those things that it became a lot of fun like how do you make everybody a better caster and it's a tough one because there's a lot of experienced casters and i mean especially imagine in the spay casting world there's a lot of people that do not want any suggestions they do not want and doesn't matter how constructive it might be they don't want any type of criticism they just want you to tell you that they're the best caster that you've ever seen right and you're like cool we'll go with that your words not mine (laughs) i'm here when you need me i just got to the point where it was like i'll tell you what i'll just stand here and if if you have a question i'll answer it for you but I've pushed this as far as I can without annoying you. Um, Can we talk a little bit about this precision thing? Because I'm fascinated. So what was some of the feedback that you had given Tim, right? Did you say, so focus solely on the object? What was the takeaway? So uh, good question. And I didn't really make that clear, I guess. Um, Some of the biggest takeaways in terms of accuracy is the only way for your brain to know where that space where that target is in space is for your eyes to give it that information your eyes give that information to your brain so your eyes need to pick up your target as early as possible and stay on the target for as long as possible so one of the important things that they found there's this term quiet eye which is this stable look you give your brain at the target before the final movement phase of whatever your skill is. So that has to be defined for every different skill. You know, in basketball, they looked at it where it was like, if you're shooting a free throw, it didn't matter how many times you dribble the ball first, spin it in your hands, bounce up and down. It was that first upward movement that you did towards actually shooting a free throw. In fly casting, it was that first final forward movement. So they were all given three false casts. And that was it. 
Because what I didn't want is for them to be able to just keep measuring and, and hold the fly over the target and you've got infinite number of casts. And now it's just a feedback loop where you're like a little bit more to the right, a little bit more to the right, a little bit more to the right, and you lay it down on your 50th false cast. They only had three false casts. So it was very challenging for a lot of them to make sure that they were hitting it with that few um, a false casts. And they had to actually be able to shoot a fair bit of line in between, especially on the further target in order to be accurate. So finding your target as early as possible and then keeping your eyes on the target. Now, on a stationary object, that's fairly obvious. It gets a little bit more confusing if we're talking about, let's say, I'm on a, a flat in the Caribbean and you see a tailing bonefish or a permit and they're cruising. Now your target is not that fish's nose necessarily. It's the distance in front of that fish that you need to land the fly based on the speed that it's traveling. So that's where you need to be looking. If you're only looking at that fish when you're trying to lead him and the guide is telling you from the platform, lead him by four feet. He's moving fast, so I want that fly four feet in front of it. But you're staring at the fish and then the fly lands on the fish's head. There's a reason that it landed on the fish's head. Right. And it's because it's where you looked. It's kind of like if you downhill ski and they tell you, like, look where you want to go. Don't look at the trees. Look in between the trees where you want to go. Because if you stare at the tree, you're going to run into it. The same thing happens with our casting. If you've got a moving fish and you're staring at that fish's tail, but you're supposed to be staring at his head, like, especially if we're talking about bigger fish or you're looking at, you know, you see a tarpon roll. And you're looking at his tail going down and you're supposed to be aiming seven feet away, right? Like <laughs> I was in Christmas Island and, you know, Mike Hennessy, he said, every fish has two ends. There's the end that eats and there's the end that cheats. Cast to the end that eats, not the end that cheats. <laughs> and I just, I love it simple, but it's amazing how often we forget there's two ends to the fish. Make sure you cast to the right end. When a fish tails, people so often get locked in on that and then they're they lay this beautiful cast right on a fish's tail they're like oh no i spooked it i blew the cast sort of you you probably blew where you were looking because your cast probably landed right where you're looking there was one guy in one of the participants in my study that was probably the most accurate caster for where he was looking that wasn't tim they were supposed to hit the middle of the target. He was looking at the edge of the target. So the way our eyes work, the first thing we pick up on is movement, which is, as you see, I always talk with my hands. And so it's super distracting when you're doing presentations on Zoom. And I'm doing this with my hands in the top right corner. And people are supposed to be looking at the big screen. And I'm distracting everyone in the corner because I can't stop talking with my hands. Well, the first thing that our eyes pick up on is movement. The second thing is edge detection. So the targets, these blue targets sitting on a white sheet of paper, the most obvious spot was that transition from the blue target to the white edge. And this one participant sometimes missed by like half a centimeter. So it counted as a miss. But when I watched all of his data, his eyes were looking at the edge of the paper. So he was actually the closest to hitting his target but he was looking at the wrong thing. He was supposed to be trying to hit the center of the target. Instead, he, his eyes naturally gravitated to the edge, and that's where all of his casts were landing. So even though his data didn't show he was the most accurate, it showed him as the second most accurate, 
technically, if the instructions hadn't been given and it was just like hit the edge of the target, he was closest to the edge of the target the majority of the time more than anybody else. He just was missing the target by a, you know, a hair a, a bunch of times because he wasn't looking at the middle. He was looking at the edge. And so your eyes will naturally gravitate to movement. So if you see a tail pop out on the fish, your eyes are going to gravitate to that. But you have to train yourself to look at what's relevant. It was kind of like some of those casters that you would watch. It's called the gaze kircher, G-A-Z-E. Um, you would see it bounce around on some of these casters where you felt like it was the Blair Witch Project, where it was just like everywhere in their visual scene. And you don't know what's going on in their head, but you kind of get that sense of, I think they're trying to reference every single object in their visual field and try and mark the distances of everything. But their eyes never stayed anywhere long enough that was relevant, such as the target. They never left their eyes on the target. It went from the target to the end of the paper, the target here, and it was just like bing, bang, bang. And it looked like a ping pong ball bouncing around. And so they never got a good look at the target until they'd already delivered their cast, the rods come to a stop, and then their eyes would lock in on the target. And you ask them after, and they're like, oh yeah, I'm locked on the target. They didn't have a concept that their eyes did this until they'd already delivered the cast. When you throw a dart, like think about bowling and the little kid thing, right? Where you where you bowl and then you're leaning, trying to hope that you can keep the ball out of the gutter. And it's so cute watching little kids do that. <laughs> That's exactly That's what, what it's like. what we do. That's amazing. Right? Yes. Because we still hold the rod in our hand, we have this false sense of, oh yeah, I can control this and I'll move it. No, you can't. You can feather the line and stop the fly from going too far. But once that rod has come to a stop, the direction of travel has already been decided. That's physics. You can't cheat physics. So the fly's already on its way to the target. That's already been decided. And then they would look at the target and be like, I was locked in on it. And they're like, oh, I missed. And it was amazing to see. There was times that you would watch. And like I literally watched thousands of hours of data. Because each person's data was an hour and 10 minutes long. right? So 30 frames a second. However many, 60 sec, seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, an hour plus for all those. That was a lot of frames of video. And it took me um, thousands of hours to do it. It caused me problem with my eyes from staring at a monitor that long. Um, really messed my eyes up. But you would start to see, oh, he's going to mess. Because I could tell that they hadn't looked at the target. I'm like, they're not going to hit it. And sure enough, you would watch it and you're like, nope. And while I was recording where their eye was and, and checking all that data, I didn't have the hit or miss in front of me. That was that had been recorded while I was actually going through at the time. And you would reference it and be like, yep, sure enough, they missed. And you would see when they were locked on the target, I'm like, I bet it hit it. And the majority of the time they hit it. So it was amazing that it started to tell you whether or not, like what their eyes did was telling you whether they were actually going to hit their targets or not. This is so interesting. So what about instinctive shooting? Because I know when I try to to shoot my traditional bow or the bow that I bought in, in Bolivia, if I focus, I miss every time. But when I just pick up and shoot, I tend to hit the target. How does that work? Um, good question. And, and I don't know for sure. And I don't want to say the wrong thing, especially anyone in the academic field will eat me alive on it. Um, but initial thoughts are with instinctive shooting, 
you still have to give your brain an opportunity to know where your target is in space. So you can hold for too long on a target. And some people do much better um, with that type of shooting because they start to experience muscle fatigue as you're trying to hold on a target. Now, if you get more shake, that's going to take away from your accuracy, but that will have nothing to do with what you did with your eyes. It's kind of why I did not look at beginner casters because you could say there were too many things that went wrong with their mechanics that that's why they missed the target as opposed to something that they did with their eyes. By looking at everybody that was already mechanically sound and had like a master certified casting instructor, their mechanics are in place. If they've got these, if they all have great mechanics, they should all have great accuracy. Every single academic paper I found, like the the cool thing about the university is they have access to every magazine you can imagine, all the academic journals, searching everywhere on the planet we could find. Every single fly fishing article I found, academic or otherwise, there was only one article out of every single one I looked at that talked about accuracy that even mentioned eyes. And it was an 11 point, uh, an article that had 11 different points and one point said, make sure you look at your target, next point. And it's, we're talking pages or chapters on all the other points and one line that said, don't forget to look at the target, which is valid, but everything else talked about mechanics. Everything was about biomechanics. There's been a ton of studies done on the biomechanics of the casting stroke, breaking down the physics of the casting stroke, the physics behind how a rod is built and how that taper goes into the action of the rod and the casting of the rod. You know, we've analyzed casting strokes to death. If everybody has perfect mechanics, why are we still in this little group? Why are we still missing targets? And so that's the thing. So when you go into the realm of something like, you know, archery and those bows, there's a lot of other factors that could be involved. If muscle fatigue is one where you try and hold for too long and get shakes, that's obviously not related to um, your eyes and whether you gave yourself a proper look at the target. That would be my best guess with that. And I can see very much like I haven't shot traditional long bows. I've always shot compound bows. But I've been at archery ranges and watched guys that were unbelievable where you would just watch them and they would just pluck the string and to put multiple arrows inside a styrofoam cup at 40 yards with a traditional bow was just, they was so impressive to me. But they looked at their target, they stared at their target and then it was, so how long your actual you know, the motor phase of your skill is, it's kind of irrelevant. Same as like with basketball, when we looked at free throws, that was very slow, but you could apply all the same principles to a jump shot in a game situation that it's done much faster. But the reality is, is still, did you find your target? Did you give your brain an opportunity to know where that target exists in space? Your eyes are responsible for that. They give your brain the coordinates to know where that target is. You have to find it early. So one of the things that was really fascinating to me was at the point that that final movement phase had already started, what people did with their eyes was irrelevant. So when they, so when my supervisor did her study on free throw shooting with basketball, as people brought the basketball through their field of vision, which you do is you shoot a free throw and it, it basically occluded their view of the target because it was blocked. 
they thought there was a problem with the eye tracker because their eyes started bouncing all over the place then. There was no issue with the with the eye tracker. It's that their brain, it didn't matter at that point. They had already given their brain the knowledge of where the hoop and where the rim was in space. So when their vision got blocked, it didn't matter. I don't know, like if you don't follow basketball, this probably won't mean much. But when I was growing up, Michael Jordan was my basketball hero, or one of them for sure. In one of the All-Star games, he did something that blew everyone away. In the All-Star game, he's shooting a free throw. And he closed his eyes and he hits the free throw with his eyes closed. The crowd goes nuts. Everybody on TV goes nuts because they see his eyes. And I was so impressed until I did my thesis and realized, oh, that's not actually like not to take anything away from Michael Jordan. But you watch what he did. He looked at the target. He gave his brain the knowledge of where it was in space. And then at the point that he started to shoot, that's when he closed his eyes. He already knew where it was in space. And so at the point that he closed his eyes, that information wasn't as important anymore. Because once you're already moving, that's too late to give your brain that information. This is so so amazing. I'm so excited about this. Finding out the information about your target early on makes such a difference. So again, those takeaways, like you said, if you're talking about a tailing fish, don't stare at his tail, stare at the end that eats, not the end that cheats. If you're talking about a rising fish in a river, don't stare at the rings that when we see that guiding all the time, you know, we do a lot of dry fly fishing and a lot of sight fishing, like in that presentation that we did back in December there, you know, when you're sight fishing, well, people get locked in on the rings and they make this perfect cast lens in the middle of the rings that are now eight feet downstream of the fish. Right. And so you know, also casting to that fish itself, that's not necessarily where I want to look because I'm trying to lead that fish by four feet. I'm trying to lay my cast four feet upstream so that it has time to drift down and doesn't lay right on its head. So I need to make sure my eyes look where I want the fly to go. If I stare at the fish, but try and cast four feet away from it, it's going to be a lot harder for me to be accurate because I'm not giving my brain proper coordinates. I'm going go four feet away from my coordinates. Those instructions are never as easy and they always take more time. Um, You know, and and our brain doesn't process negatives, right? If I look at something and you go, I'm looking here, but don't cast here, cast there. Your brain doesn't process that negative. Same as if I tell you, do not picture a pink elephant. What did you just do? I just pictured a pink elephant. Do not picture (laughs) purple polka dots on the pink elephant. Stop it! (laughs) And so from a, like... So I learned that through the sports psychology stuff. And that goes so far when it comes to us teaching, because instead of telling people what not to do, you know, you need to focus on what they're supposed to do. Telling people, don't do this. What's the first, like, don't think about a pink elephant. What did you just do again? Like, I made it pretty clear. (laughs) Don't think about a gold star in the middle of the purple polka dot and the pink (laughs) elephant that you're not supposed to picture, right? (laughs) Our brain doesn't protest those negatives. In the same way, if you try and look at the wrong place and expect your brain to hit somewhere else, your brain's not going to process that as well. Look where you want the fly to go. So at what point then does hand-eye coordination come into play here? Because... I would imagine you could have all the focus in the world, but if your grip is wrong or your your straight line is off or your trajectory isn't quite right, something, I mean, it's, you're not going to hit the target. So at what point 
does the average angler, not a master caster here is very consistent, but the average angler, what is this even relevant to them if their casting stroke isn't really up to snuff? Yes. Fair question. And it's been so long since I've kind of done a deep dive into the thesis stuff. Um, the question that I came up with, I don't want to make sure that I, I say this right. Um, the original question that I kind of posed for my thesis is there's no question that proper mechanics are necessary for accuracy, but that doesn't mean that they're sufficient. So just because you have proper mechanics doesn't mean that that's good enough. If you don't look at your target, you won't hit it. So it's, it's one of the factors that's involved. So if you're not at an elite level caster, that's fine. You are going to need proper mechanics if you expect to get to an elite level of accuracy. But it is something that's necessary. Casting proper mechanics are necessary. You can't say that like I was laser focused on the target and I missed it by 75 feet. Like it's got to be my eyes. And it's like, <laughs> nope, you're just terrible at your mechanics, right? So there's no question that proper mechanics are necessary. I was just trying to make the point with my thesis that that doesn't mean it's sufficient. And there's more than just your mechanics at play. And so if I'm learning to cast, I need to work on my mechanics but i should also be working on what i address with my eyes at the same time it's a really good thing for a lot of beginner casters to teach them look at the rod tip because when they look at it all of a sudden they stop it right where they're supposed to as soon as they don't look at it they stop their hand where they're supposed to because you know they've had their hand with them their whole life they know where their hand is in space they don't know where the tip of that nine foot rod is. And so when they're learning, they stop and that tip of the rod is either, you know, in the water behind them, or if you're teaching them in an asphalt parking lot, like we do on our 101 lessons, it's slamming into the asphalt behind them and they have no concept because they're in their head. I stop my hand nice and high, just like he said, I listen, I'm a great listener. I need a gold star. Turn around and look at the rod tip. Oh, dang, <laughs> I broke it off on the ground, <laughs> right? They don't know where the, the tip is. They don't have that spatial awareness yet for the implement in their hand. That comes with practice. That comes in time. If you have them always looking at their rod tip and you never get them to start looking at their target, those casters are going to have a really hard time progressing to being very accurate casters if they've never been in the habit of actually looking at their target. So there's a point that you have to get your mechanics in place. Without proper mechanics, there's no chance for accuracy. But as you start to get comfort levels with those mechanics, one of the progressions that we need to add is to make sure that we're actually addressing the target and giving our brain a chance to know where that target is in space. The whole progression thing is something that I, I got very frustrated with in, in the fly fishing world. When I, if you had never shot a basketball in your life, I would teach you how to shoot a, a basketball in an eight-step progression. And not a jump shot, like just a, a free throw where your feet don't leave the ground. The simplest form of a shot in basketball, I taught that in an eight-step progression. It worked very well. You could teach it to a four-year-old child, and when you went through the progression, they would get it. Fly casting is a far more complex motor skill, and for decades, we've tried to teach the entire thing at once. Okay, just do exactly what I do. Make sure you stop here. Make sure you accelerate to a stop. Make sure that you're tracking. We give them so much information. It's absolute information overload. And we're saying, now just do what I did. And they try and it's impossible. 
and they fail. And for so many years, we failed as instructors and told them, well, maybe it's just too hard for you. Like, I'm good at it, but maybe it's too hard for you. Maybe you should try golf because that's what you should do if you can't cast a fly rod, right? So I think for so many years as an industry, we were letting people down by not breaking it down into bite-sized pieces. There are certainly instructors out there from day one that were phenomenal. I mean, we're so fortunate that we had the lefty craze and the flip pallets and, you know, so many people that gave us a great framework to start with. So it's not like this is something that we've just invented. But at the same time, as a whole, the industry could have done participants so much better for so long to actually give them a progression. Teach one little piece. Once you get that, now I'm going to add another thing. Cool. You're doing great with that. Now we add another thing. Now we add another thing. And it's amazing how often, like from a guiding standpoint, I've had people on the water. They're like, what do I do if I catch a fish? I'm like, we're not even going to talk about that right now. Because there's way too many things to go into. You can't process all of it. You can't remember all of it. We're going to add things. And if you hook a fish, hopefully I can talk you through it. Maybe you freak out and you can't process any of that information. And that just means it's my job to find you another fish after that point. Right? But we overwhelmed people for so long. And 20 years ago when I started guiding, it was commonplace to see a guide get their guests into the boat float 100 yards, pull over and spend however long it took to get someone casting reasonably well before they were allowed to start fishing. Some people spent an hour there. Some people spent four hours there and they lost a huge portion of their whole day feeling demeaned that like they weren't good enough to go fishing. They paid all this money to learn how to fish and all they're doing is casting and being told they're terrible. Mm -hmm. And you don't even have the right to try fishing until you're better than you are right now. And to me, that would be so disappointing and so discouraging. And like, why would you necessarily rebook a trip with that person unless you're a masochist, right? <laughs> like it's, and so it's so nice to see instruction styles improving and to see more progressions being done and to see, a better understanding on the instruction side of things. And, you know, there, there's been lots of different certifications and groups and, you know, some I believe in some I haven't, I've never done any of the like formal certifications because uh, one of the things that I ran into is when I did my thesis, I saw all these people that had the same certification. Some were here, some were here. And the people that always talked about, I'm a big deal because I have the certification. Most of the people that struggled, the people that never name dropped, I'm a master certified casting instructor, by the way. Like if you need anyone to teach this, it should be me because I'm, you know, on the board of governors. Tim never mentions that. Tim's on the board of governors, right? It never came up, but you watch him cast and you're like, oh, hot dang, like show me what you're doing because I want to be like that, right? And so that, it actually put me off of certifications. Where I was like, I want to make people a better caster, but I don't want to hang a label on it. And I'm not saying that that's a good route to go or a bad route. You know, I know a lot of people that got the certifications and it allowed them to reach out to more students and to do more good than you could without it. And so, you know, I don't, I'm certainly not um, advocating for not 
becoming certified because some of the best casters I know or have ever met with are certified casting instructors and have taught way more people than I have. And I have a huge amount of respect for what they've done for this industry. And a lot of it was, uh, was, you know, the vehicle for that was their certification. So that was just a personal decision that I made. Um, there's times that I regret it and wish that I had gone through and done the certifications. And there's times that I, I'm glad I did it the way I did. And it just flip-flops from day to day. <laughs> While I have you here, I'd like to introduce you to Athletic Brewing Company. Athletic Brewing Company brews delicious craft beer that just happens to be non-alcoholic. As someone who is regularly appointed as designated driver, there are times, especially after a long hot day on the water, where I would also like to relax and drink a cold beer after fishing. Athletic Brewing Company is the perfect substitute for those of us who crave an ice-cold beverage without needing to worry about alcohol content. In 2020, they donated over $300,000 to trail restoration and backcountry safety through their Two for the Trails program, where 2% of all sales dollars goes to maintaining trails and parks. Also, since they make non-alcoholic beer, they're able to ship it through the mail directly to you. And to sweeten the deal, they're offering free shipping on two six-packs or more. Try their award-winning beer at athleticbrewing.com and use code ANCHOR20 to get 20% off your first order. So what on earth is going on over there with this coal mine? In, in, in summary, I mean, I understand that we're planning on, on doing a deep dive into this at some point, but let's just cover the basis for people who might not have any idea what's happening. Yeah. Um, as the kind of Cole's notes on it, in 1976, Peter Lougheed, who was one of our famous premiers, um, put in this coal policy that said there's no open pit coal mining allowed in our Rocky Mountains. Those are our headwaters. Those are our mountains. That's just such a sacred space that's at the core of Alberta's identity. You look at the crest in the center of the Alberta flag, it shows the Rocky Mountains. Right, It's at the core of our identity, so we're just not going to allow coal mining there. In June of this year, our provincial government removed that coal policy without any public consultation. They pushed that through on, at 4.30 on Friday of the May long weekend, where the press cycle is over. You're going into a long weekend. It was only days after reopening the whole province after two and a half months of quarantines. So everybody is focused on like the long weekend, getting back into business. So they just kind of tried to usher it in the back door. They've sold off the coal rights. So there's 840,000 hectares of coal leases and agreements that are available that are being sold off currently. So Grassy Mountain is the coal mine that already has approval. It's down near the Crow's Nest Pass, but there are, so many other opportunities for coal mines um, to get leases. Leases are assigned. When they get a coal lease, they can go in and start exploring. So they can punch roads in. They can put bridges over rivers. They can drill holes in the ground to find out, like, is it worth actually putting a coal mine in here without an environmental impact assessment being done? So they're punching all of this exploration they've sold all these rights and so 840,000 hectares at three dollars and fifty cents a hectare that they sold off so for just under three million dollars our government sold our mountains to australian mining companies so you can buy a home in calgary there are 
I don't know the number, but there are a huge number of homes in this city that cost more than what our government sold the rights to coal for. And they're saying it's going to create all these jobs. Like, I completely understand the need for politicians to try and find alternative income streams. Like, COVID hurt the world. It hurt Alberta's economy. People are out of work. I think we need to applaud the politicians for trying to find something and just make sure that we're unequivocally clear that this is not an acceptable alternative. There are lots of ways that you could make money that would not be acceptable, right? You could sell cracked kids. That would make money. That's also completely unacceptable, right? And so just because it creates jobs and just because it creates money doesn't mean that's an acceptable means of doing it. The problem with the coal mines is all of our headwaters for this province and the drinking water that goes from the Continental Divide all the way to the Hudson's Bay, those rivers are drinking water for all of our cities, all of our people. We've already seen these coal mines that are in British Columbia. The selenium poisoning has caused up to a 93% reduction in fish populations downstream of the tech coal mines. That's not a third-party assessment. Tech's own reports show that. So Tech is the name of the, of the mining company, and their internal reports show there's a 93% loss in fish populations. Um, there's deformities in the spine because of the coal mines. There's deformities in the gill plates where they don't have properly formed gill plates, and they're, you see their gills are actually exposed which obviously makes them way more susceptible to other diseases as well. So selenium poisoning is very serious for our fish, but you also have the reality that selenium poisoning is also happening in all of our drinking water and our drinking water for everybody. Like the Old Man River where where um, Grassy Mountain coal mine is, that feeds Lethbridge's drinking water. That's in the top three or four cities in this whole province in terms of its size, its drinking water comes from the old man. The, the water allocations that have not been allowed to be touched for, for so long, because there's allocations for agriculture, there's allocations for um, like cattle and the grazing industry. Well, now at the headwaters in front of all of this, they've suddenly given allocations to the mine. The mine is going to be using water to wash the coal. And then you've got all these tailing ponds that are there. And so you've got all of these toxins and heavy metals that are going to be sitting in these tailing ponds that we're going to hope these don't leach back into the water stream. But look at the flood events. So according to you know, my guiding career in the last 20 years, I've seen the worst flood in 50 years, the worst flood in 100 years, the worst flood in recorded history that had only been recorded for 174 years. And then that was 2005. And then you go into 2013 and we had a flood that was double those levels. So apparently I've been guiding for 400 years. What happens when one of those flood events hits these tailing ponds and the tailing ponds that were set up for a normal snowpack and a normal snow year. And now all of a sudden we get this 400 year snow event. What happens to all those tailing ponds then? What happens to the fact that, you know, you get coal dust that does travel through the air? I mean, it's an open pit coal mine. The problem is you take off the tops of all the mountains, you dump it and you fill in the valleys and you flatten everything out, which means wind is going to have the ability to carry these heavy metals and these toxins much further. 
it's one of the windiest places on the planet. Like within the last few months, they just had a new record wind recording, 195 kilometers per hour. It's very common that we have just horrendous winds down there, which is why you see windmills set up all over the place throughout Pincher Creek and throughout Southern Alberta. We have so much wind, like how far is that coal dust and, and that contamination going to carry out onto the prairie, out onto agricultural lands, out into the, all of these populated cities? One of the problems, I think, is when you look at the locations of these coal leases on a map, it would be easy for someone who has never stepped foot there and never stepped foot outside a city to look at a map and goes, that looks perfect. It's two hours from the nearest town. It's, you know, it's an hour and a half from the nearest paved road. I bet you there's no one there. They won't even know that we're back there. And they can pitch it and sell it as that. That Southern Alberta area is the most heavily used recreation area we have in the province. So there's a fire base there. And one of the guys with the mines, the stopcrowsnestmines.org um, petitions that were set up, he was talking to the guys at the fire base. On the August long weekend, they counted 2,000 camper trailers in the area that these coal mines are. 2,000 in one day. That doesn't count day use vehicles where someone just drove in and parked. That doesn't count any of the people that walked in. That doesn't tell you how many people are in all of those campers, right? And they're trying to say that this is way back there. No one goes back there. No one even sees it. Like it's way off the beaten path. You know, and I think we learned even in our lifetime that now you don't see logging right beside a highway. You see it on the other side of a ridge. You see it in behind a, a belt of trees to hide it. This has kind of been pitched as this is way back there. Nobody will know it's there. It's not. It's such a heavily used area, not just by anglers, hunters, campers, you know, all your ATV users, hikers. Like it is such a heavily used area and it's such a huge part of the tourism. Like we've taken out some of the VPs from Orvis who have traveled the world fishing and have been here and said, this is the greatest cutthroat fishery we've ever seen anywhere like the beauty of these mountains and these streams and the quality of our fisheries the tourism draw is huge and we're going to trade all of that for 350 jobs and it's 350 jobs that have a lifespan of 20 to 25 years whereas tourism lasts generations and generations because it's sustainable and so putting in a coal mine in this area is just it's mind-boggling that it would happen and that it would be allowed. And we we have people that now are aware that it's trying to be pushed in the back door and that no public consultation was given. There was no conversations that started like, do any of the people that elected these officials agree with this policy? And the reality we're seeing is not. Like we've seen polls that were done, you know, in the in the blue-collar town of Red Deer where I have the numbers on it, but I can't remember. It was either 73 or 93% opposed to the coal mine. I think it was 93% opposed to the coal mine. So we're seeing a huge public outcry that we have no interest in this. And then our government came back and said, okay, we heard what you said. We're listening. We get it. So we're going we're gonna to shut down all the new coal leases, and we're going to give back these this huge tract of land. So they returned 1,800 out of the 840,000 
hectares of land. That works out to 0.02%. And so the question that we keep posing to people, like, will less than half of half a percent buy your silence? (laughs) Because a lot of people actually, like, that's the way the government presented it to us. We listen to you. Here you go. We're giving it back. It's it's just smoke and mirrors. And it's sad how many people actually thought that that was a win and not that that was, there's no way that wasn't already a preconceived plan. Like if we receive some opposition, have some area that you can throw them a bone and hopefully that makes them go away. I think that's an insult. So it wait a second. An insult. But you know, it's it, being in Australia, I, I think one of the most shocking things to me here is when I, obviously I have an accent here. So everybody asks me, oh, where's your accent from? Canada. Oh, I love Canada. I go, oh, were you in Toronto or Vancouver? Because it's usually one of those two. Yep. Almost every single person, it was Banff, Alberta. They've been in, in your neck of the woods, not mine. And that was one of the biggest surprises that I had. So and I had pitched this when I had, um, was speaking to Nancy and, and Nellie about Pebble Mine. What about if the Australians put the pressure on? Because Australia knows this is wrong, for sure. Right now, all of these coal mines that are, I shouldn't say all, the majority of these coal mines and the grassy mountain mine that's been approved, it's an Australian mining company that the rights have been sold to. Um, but absolutely, if Australians came forward and said, we know this isn't right. And like, we've had a a huge um, response to some of the videos that we put out. And we've had a huge number of our American guests say, like, I'm not a Canadian citizen, but you know how many times we've come up and fished with you. That area is important to us. And we spend a lot of money on airfare, on hotels, on restaurants while we're there. The guiding is a very small portion of the money they spend when they come you know, to Calgary for a week. And the number of people that are like, I'm not coming to visit an open pit coal mine. I'm not going to go to the mountains to go for a hike to see what the view of a open pit mine looks like. It's, it's ending so many tourism opportunities. And especially when you look at the pandemic and the downturn in economy, like oil took a huge hit in Alberta and Alberta has been very heavily reliant on oil tourism was carrying this province and now you're trying to put a bullet in the head of tourism like it just it doesn't make sense and it's very short-sighted thinking and i can understand and appreciate as a politician feeling the responsibility of we need to find jobs how do we create jobs and how do we create an income stream got to find it somewhere this just isn't that place and coal isn't evil mining isn't evil that's not the message and that's not what we're trying to say but putting open pit coal mines at the headwaters of all of these rivers and it's not just proposed for southern alberta it goes all the way up through our rocky mountains coal leases and assignments go all the way up almost to grand prairie so the just about the entire eastern slopes of the rocky mountains are now being sold for coal And there are a lot of other places that you can mine coal and that you can take coal out where you're not leveling all of our mountaintops and you're not endangering all of the drinking water for all of the citizens east of the Rockies 
as well as wiping out the habitat and the ecosystems of our wildlife. Like not just, it's not just a fishing issue. This, this spans so much bigger than fishing. Like this is an environmental issue that is so much bigger than any one user group. It's not just the fisher. It's not just the anglers. It's not just the hunters. It's not just the backpackers, the hikers, the campers, you know, the gatherers. There's so many user groups and so many stakeholders that need to step up to the plate here. This is really interesting. I, I will tell you, I've had more response to this in the last couple of weeks than I have in the last few years as far as a conservation issue goes. And at first, because you were the first person to hit me up about it, and and I thought to myself, yeah, yeah, of course, I'll sign the petitions, share the petitions for sure. But I'm going to just sit on this one for a week or so and just see what the general consensus is. Because usually usually something happens and everyone's hot about it and they they hit me up on Instagram or an email. And then I just kind of like to sit back and wait to see what happens. But in this case, it's just gaining traction and I'm getting more and more and more people and it's getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And I, like I told you earlier before we were rolling, I feel like I'm kind of reliving the uh, the shell issue that we had in the sacred headwaters of the Skeena in British Columbia. Yeah. And I see a lot of parallels there. And uh, I try very carefully to just balance putting my name on on conservation issues because I don't want to. I just don't want to always be, you know, that person that you hate to hear from because I'm always negative, Nancy. But this is one where I can feel it's going to be a problem, um, and so I'm, I'm willing to commit. So hopefully, we were talking about doing an into the backing episode on this. I wonder yeah. if the third person at the table would make sense to have someone from the Australian Corporation. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Yeah, it would we'll be interesting because I mean, there's no question that they can make a case for this is why we're trying to add value to your economy. It can, but it was like our converse, like earlier in the conversation. There's lots of ways that you can make more money that would not be considered um, acceptable. What can people do to find out more and take action now, apart from having to sign eight petitions? Or is that where we're at right now? Are we are we trying to piece together all of the organizations who are are trying to make a difference? So, uh, a really good question. And the reality is, those petitions help, and there are petitions that we can do. The biggest thing that people need to be doing is they need to contact their elected officials. All of our elected officials want to stay in power. They don't want to have one term and be gone. They need to hear from their constituents. They need to hear for the people that voted them in to say that I'm a conservative and I completely disagree with this. This is a bipartisan issue. It's not, it, it shouldn't be just a political issue. This is so much bigger than just the politics or one party's platform. It shouldn't matter what party you support, you should not be behind these minds. And so one of the biggest things that people can do is to reach out to their MLAs, reach out to their MPs, um, groups like Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, groups like CPAWS, which is Canadian Parks and Wilderness Services, have done a great job of setting up on their websites like pre-written letters that you can just customize and then you can put in your postal code and it'll actually send a letter to your MLA and your MP based on your postal code and you can look it up. We've put that, what we tried to do... On our website, we tried to combine all of these petitions, all of the letter writing campaigns. There's a postcard writing campaign. We tried to put them all in one place for people because the confusion was somebody thought, well, I signed that one petition. 
well, so I'm done. And it's like, well, we appreciate that you did that, but there's so much more that you can do. And talking to the people that have really been advocating and that work full-time in this, like some of the people at CPAWS, those online petitions are, are literally some of the least effective things that we can do. And unfortunately, too many people feel that like I shared a post, so I saved a mountain. We need to reach out to our elected officials and all of those petitions, all of those letter writing campaigns, we had so many people like in 48 hours, we had 3,500 people go to that page on our website with all of those eight action items, which was incredible to see that many people go there and to message us and say like, I've done all that. Now what? The best thing that you can do is contact your elected officials, both at the provincial and at the federal level and let them know that you don't support these coal mines and educate yourself on why so that you have a good reason why and not just, well, coal's bad. Coal is not bad. Coal is not inherently evil. We do not want open pit coal mines in our mountains. When you've done that, and there's lots of people that have done that, that they say, well, now what? Find five people that are outside your circle or outside your industry and talk to them and get them to do it. Because one of the things I've heard, like talking to the uh, Neil from Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, he said, it's been amazing to see the response from fly anglers. He said, they're seeing very little response from terminal tackle anglers. He said, they're seeing almost no response from hunters. And those are all stakeholders in this. Those are all users that should be every bit as motivated. And so, you know, I think too often fly anglers talk to fly anglers, bow hunters talk to bow hunters, rifle hunters talk to rifle hunters, and we're not moving outside our circles. So that's the thing that, and this was, I think, Katie at CPAWS that recommended this, is find five people that are not inside your industry or your circle, talk to them educate them on it, make sure they educate themselves on it, make sure they now take action and then get them to engage five more. And that's how we reach out and get more people to take action because, you know, the whole, like it's unbelievable to see how many people have shared the videos on, you know, uh, no coal mines in, in Iraqi. Those save our slopes videos have been great. Like we did up, stickers where like we've got those sos stickers save our slopes because this really is an emergency like this it's that universal everyone understands this is a cry for help we need to do something to save our mountains and sharing a post isn't going to do that sharing a post will certainly let more people be aware of the issue and that helps so that more people can advocate but it has to go past social media we have to actually engage our elected officials. So each one of us need to do that. And then if we can reach out to five people and get five new people to engage their elected officials, our elected officials want to be reelected. If they know they have no chance of being reelected, if they back a coal mine, they're going to have to change that. But what's the best way to do that? I mean, now, I knew the answer to this 10 years ago, but I don't know it now. Do we call? Do we do letters? I know, you know, a decade ago that, that there was like a calculation, right? It was like a phone call accounted for a certain percentage of change. A letter was, I think, a little bit less um, as far as how productive it was. And then online was kind of the lowest form. So, yeah, so I what about now? I I don't know the the best answer to that and CPAWS would be a great group to go to them because they would have the answers to that. They employ people full time that can answer that. 
But along that same line, I saw a stat that was saying that every signature, like 10,000 signatures on an online petition are equivalent to one personal email. Right. That's okay. Got it. So what about phone calls? Is that still an option? It was before, but is that still something we can do? Because I would love to pick up the phone and make a phone call. Absolutely. So it's one of the reasons. So that same page on our website, we've got us, you know, save our slopes um, page on the website. We added, it's basically just a link where you can look up, you know, wherever you are in Canada or wherever you are in Alberta, it'll give you your MLA for the provincial stuff and your MP for the federal stuff. And it gives you all of their contact info because that's public record. It's on the, the their websites. And so instead of everyone having to search, how do I find, I was getting hundreds of messages on social media a day, April of people saying, how do I find out who my MP is? How do I find out who my MLA is? So we put the link there so you can look it up and you can call them. Like, I think it's great that BCA and CPAWS have done those form emails, but I'm sure that if you see the exact same form email coming into your inbox over and over, it's going to be a lot easier to start ignoring that when people write a personal email and maybe just read that form email. Like there's a lot of people that don't know what to say. And so that really helps. And that's an amazing thing. So I, I applaud the work that they've done there, but personalize it you know, make it your own, put your own words in there as well. So it's not just the same block email that they see over and over again and phone them, talk to them. Like the effort it takes to just, you know, I signed my name and I put in my postal code and I sent that email. Your MP knows a form email. It took you 10 seconds. That's what you were willing to invest is 10 seconds to say, I disagree. Do you really feel that strongly about this? Or were you just moved by a social media post for a 10-second action? Someone who's willing to phone, like you said, pick up the phone. Someone who writes a personal letter. Someone who writes a completely personalized email. That's harder to ignore. And when they send you back their form response, reply to it. Don't let them get away with the smoke and mirrors responses that they get where where you get these responses where it's, oh, it's all about job creation. We're here. We're helping the citizens. And no, you're not. You're hurting us. You're looking at a 20-year short-term money grab for destroying our mountains that are at the core of this province's identity forever. Mountains don't grow back. Like we're not even talking lumber. Like it's it's not going to grow back. You can't just level these mountains and expect them to be there later. I have a silly question, but I am a little bit lost here. So if I wanted to call a, an elected official, yep, wouldn't I be focusing solely on on your guys's government? Like I wouldn't call a British Columbian elected official. Correct. Correct. So if any Albertans want to talk like, so their MLAs is the member legislative assembly, which is provincial. So if you live in the province of Alberta, you should be contacting your MLA. If you don't live in Alberta, you can still contact your MP and you can still contact the federal minister of environment and say, I don't agree with this. I'm a Canadian citizen. This had to have federal approval. And so as Canadians, we can absolutely go there. And that's one of the things that talking to Katie at CPAWS showed us 
for so many of the Americans or anyone that's traveled from around the world, we have visitors from around the globe that come to visit our mountains and to fish in them and to hike in them and to camp in them. They can reach out to the federal minister because under environment, you also have tourism that falls under there. You have a reason to reach out and say, I may not be a Canadian citizen, but I spend my tourism dollars in your country because of your mountains. And I think that this is a terrible idea. And you are going to cost your country my tourism dollars if there's no mountains to visit. If you poison the rivers and there's no fish to catch. If the grizzly bears and the elk and the deer and the wolves and everything else have left because you've decimated their habitat. And so like anyone who's been here, anyone who wants to travel here in the future has a reason to reach out, you know, at that federal level and say like tourist dollars get spent there. You have a voice. Let's talk a little bit about just how this looks because most people who don't make the effort, it's not because they're lazy or time poor. It's because they don't know how to make the first step. And you and I are both passionate about removing the intimidation and making it clear how to start and how to finish to get results. So let's do that. Okay. I get on the phone. I get a phone number. Maybe I'll even share a phone number in a second here. And then I call, ring, someone in the office answers, maybe. Let's let's go on to be realistic. It's going to be a soundboard. You have reached the blah, 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 blah. Press one for... You know, um, so what do I, what do I press? What do I do? Actually, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to call. I'm going to call. What's the number? Uh, I don't have it in front of me. It's on our website. (laughs) Hey, you pull it up and you tell me who to call and I'll make a phone call. Let's see what it sounds like. They'll probably be closed, but let's just have an idea of what this is going to go down as. So let's look up your MP's contact info, which is, there's a link right on our page that says that, and it takes us to the rcommons.ca. Uh, website, which is the House of Commons um, website for Canada. And so now we can look up yours. So in BC. And what am I going to say to this BC person? Hey, you're doing a great job, but can we get these dickheads out of Alberta? Like, what do I say to someone in BC? That works. (laughs) No, (laughs) probably not. Um, uh, Fair question, fair comment. So one of the first things I think we need to say is the fact that this is going to impact all Canadians because we're all going to get painted with the same brush. So if everybody thinks of Alberta as this, you know, this new horrible place where they're not concerned about the environment at all, well Canadians are going to get painted with that same brush and that's going to that's going to impact tourism dollars that get spent here because people aren't going to want to come to the place that well I heard their mountains are full of open pit coal mines. And, you know, they might not realize that a place like Banff that they've heard of, and like you said, even people commonly bring up with you in Australia, is inside a national park, so that would be protected. People that are outside the country aren't necessarily going to know where the park boundaries are and know what's been impacted and what hasn't. Is this BC or Ontario spokesperson going to then call Alberta, or are they going to go straight to federal and say, hey, listen, we've been getting a lot of calls? Straight to Straight to federal. And that's the thing. So the federal minister is Jason Nixon, I believe. Let me just. Yeah, you keep digging. I'm going to keep firing questions. Would it make more sense to flood Alberta or would it make more sense to flood federal? Both. Because um, both are 
required for this to have gone through and for it to have approval. So our Minister of Environment and Parks is Jason Nixon. Okay. All right. So I want to reach out to Jason. So now yes. what do I do? I've got my phone open and ready. I'm in Australia, so I've got the little plus number on here so I can start with a one. What are they calling the coal, the coal mine project? Uh, Grassy Mountain. That's the one that's already received its approval and has already started. Like they've already punched roads in there. They've already started, uh, you know, exploring and, and drilling holes in the ground. Um, that's Grassy Mountain. The rest, there's, you know, hundreds of these lease sites that are up for grabs. But that's the one that uh, is already underway. So if someone were to call or write, they would say, I'm calling or writing to express my concern or my opposition to the Grassy Mountain Coal Mine proposal. Yes. Yeah. And the concerns based on the fact that those are the headwaters for all of the rivers that feed not just the drinking water for our province and not just the drinking water you know, for all of the grazing leases that Alberta has in terms of, you know, the cattle grazing leases, which that's a huge stakeholder in terms of the water. Uh, But also you're concerned about the selenium poisoning that's going to happen to the fish in the water that has been shown in the mines just on the other side of the border in, in British Columbia. Like that selenium poisoning is a very serious concern. Um, and something that needs to be addressed and can't be just said, ah, well, it's, you know, it's not a big deal. The other thing to point to and and one of the things to bring up is the fact that we want to see that 1976 coal policy reinstated. It was in place for the protection of our mountains and our eastern slopes. They removed it without any pub- public consultation and they've tried to justify that saying, well, the environmental um, assessments are so much more stringent and the rules are way more stringent than they used to be. So the policy didn't really matter anymore. That policy protected our mountains and it prevented any open pit coal mining taking place in them. Removing a policy like that without any public consultation is, is not right. That's not appropriate. And so that's a, a big action item that we can request. And they need to know that people want to see that policy put back in place. The reason there's a Peter Lougheed Provincial Park, the reason there's a Peter Lougheed Hospital is because he was one of our premiers that left a legacy and was highly respected. And he's the one that put that um, and the Conservative Party are the ones that actually put that coal policy in place back in 1976. So for the conservatives to now just take it out without any public consultation is not appropriate. What's the phone number? So the phone number, it will, so your MLA will depend on where you are or your MP. I'm in British Columbia in, in uh, Chilliwack. And actually, oh, it's, 6.30 there, so it's 5, yeah, it's 5.30 in Canada. So they will probably be closed unless someone's working hard. When you go to that link on our site, it, there's a link to look up your MLA, which is provincial, and there's a link to look up your MP, which is federal. And when you get to that page, which I'm on, which is that House of Commons page for Canada, it shows you um, all of the current members, and then you can sort by province. And so you're in um, British Columbia, 
you can sort by last name or we can look them up based on their postal code. All right, so that is Mark Straw. So when I put in your postal code, I get um, the MP for that area, which is Mark Straw. And his contact info is listed. And so the contact info is there. It has his email, mark.straw at parl.gc.ca. It also shows his constituency office and the contact number, both a phone number and fax number for his constituency office, which is in Chilliwack, as well as his Hill office, which is in Ottawa. So there's both phone numbers are there. So which one makes the most sense? Because my fear is that if we all call our different people from our different townships and our different cities, it's just not going to have the impact because they're going to just be like, oh, she was crazy. Hang up. Bye. How, I mean, does it make sense strategically to focus on one phone number? It, it does. Um, this is honestly something that I, it's above my knowledge base on it, April. And I don't want to inform people incorrectly that this is where like the Katie's of CPAWS, this is the perfect question for her. Well, I will make um, you guys all a deal for the uh, sake of, for the risk of looking foolish on my part. Uh, because I'm I'm admittedly more likely to write an email and have always written letters and emails rather than hopped on a phone. But I also understand that mm-hmm. a lot of people listening, I feel like they might be motivated to get on a phone call. I will do a podcast on this and I will call an official on the phone to show people the process to remove the intimidation out of it. Because even I am intimidated about hopping on the call. It's like, am I getting an automated system or a person? Is it the secretary? Surely Mm -hmm. it's not Mark. What do I say? Hi, I'd like to speak to Mark, please. Oh, hi, Mark. I'm calling about an issue in Alberta. He's going to say, and so I will, I will do that. I will commit to getting on the phone and actually making a call publicly. Uh, I don't know what the, what that looks like legally. I may have to say it's recorded. So I'll have to look into that first. Um, but yeah, I will go I ahead and, and commit to doing that for people so that they can follow along and, and get away from the cut and paste petition emails because it is nice to have something personal go out. I agree very much. And I think, um, that's super important when you said that personal aspect. And I think humanizing the issue is important too, where they're talking to people that care. They're not just receiving another email that showed up or another online petition that shows up in their inbox. It's a person that that's a person that voted for them. That's a person that may or may not vote for them again, based on their stance on this. And that's the big thing. Elected officials need to know that this matters. And if you want to see another term, you need to address this topic. And so talking to them is super important. Um, One of the things that I can do is I can talk to Katie and find out those contacts of exactly who we should be directing everyone inside Alberta. Because that's what I've mostly um, talked to because that's where most of the contacts have come from and addressing the MLAs and everyone contact their MLA. And then you can also contact your MP. But if you're outside of Alberta, who to talk to, um, I'll I'll dig for you and and get the proper answer to that question so that you can go through step by step and and people can see how simple the process can be um, when it's done right. 
Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. Sorry, I don't have that for you right now. No, that's okay. It's probably meant to be because then at least this way I can call when the office is open. Right now, I'm just going to get an automated system. So we'll be able to call when the office is open and actually see what the process looks like. So um, I will wait until I have more information and then we'll do it properly during business hours. Cool. I like it. Okay. Now, just real quick, um, we've been talking for a long time and the problem with you is that you're so damn interesting that <laughs> um, we're probably not going to get to cover everything, but I do just want to kind of skip through. So, you know, you did your guide, you are still doing your guiding on the bow. You've got the fly shop. Do you want to just explain to some people who are listening right now why you and everyone else who owns a fly shop kind of rolls their eyes and goes, you know, if you, if you get sucked into owning a fly shop, cause it's a lot of work. And I just want to, I always like to keep the show honest. And, and a lot of the people who listen are thinking about making the move. Mm-hmm. What do you have to say for those people who are getting into this now? And they're just like you and, and maybe they're getting older and the fly shop's looking pretty appealing right now. Run while you can. <laughs> Um, (laughs) (laughs) like when does it make sense and when does it not make sense um i think it doesn't ever make sense you just do it because i guess uh, (laughs) the running joke i used to have when it came to a fly shop is don't ever uh don't ever raise if you don't mean it for me it was (sighs) it was an opportunity that presented itself i was literally coming back from christmas island i went there to check it out um, for a future hosted trip destination, a buddy offered to pick me up from the airport on the way home because I hadn't sorted out a ride yet, which was pretty usual for me. Travel enough that I'm like, I'll figure something out or I'll take an Uber or a cab. And so he picks me up. I offered to take him to breakfast for picking me up from the airport. And he's somebody who's been on a number of hosted trips with me. He's been to a lot of different destinations that I've gone to, loves to fish, super keen to hear about Christmas Island. Again, smoke and mirrors, that's what he made it sound like it was about. We start talking about Christmas Island. He's all excited. And then just out of the blue, 10 minutes into this conversation, he goes, hey, do you want to buy a fly shop? And I literally just about coated him in food, spitting it all over the table because I had a mouthful of breakfast. And I'm going, and my response was, no, like, why would I do that? Why? He's like, well, just hear me out. And I was like, no, that's stupid. Like, I'm already working 65 hours a week. When am I supposed to run this fly shop, man? And within about 10 minutes all of a sudden i'm starting to listen to him and 15 minutes later we're in his truck driving down to the fly shop i haven't been home in three weeks and i haven't been home yet i've got all my luggage in his vehicle and we drove to the shop because the former owner had passed away unexpectedly he had a heart attack in his sleep and just didn't wake up so if if there's a way to go it's a great way to go um, but after a year and a half, his widow decided that she didn't want to keep it. She didn't want to run it. So she was selling it. So we went down there and I spent three days. I did an inventory. I counted every single item in that shop and made my decision based on numbers instead of a gut feeling of, well, this could work. Looking at their books, it didn't seem like a good idea. But my buddy Steve's point was, we already had a very large and busy guide service. We had a a fairly strong following because of like starting with the fly nation days and all the stuff that we've done with either TV or film festivals, or even just the fact that, you know, Nato and I are both photographers. We're fortunate that there's a larger following there because of stuff like that. 
And so to kind of start now streamlining all these people through a shop, it made business sense. And there's a, it was a shop that had already been there for 25 years, right? So there's, it's already an established location for a shop. So there was enough boxes that when I started doing the research, you could tick that like maybe this does make business sense, even though it makes no sense for my life. <laughs> and so th- the big thing I would say is on paper, I'm the last person that should buy a fly shop. I know that. I repped for six years. I had the opportunity to visit a lot of fly shops. And you would go into shops that you would look around and go like, you guys have no competition in your area. You should be killing it. And instead, you're getting killed. You would obviously never say that to them. But you had an opportunity to see that. And you went to other places and you saw shops that you're like, you have so much competition. Like, I visited four of your competitors doing my rep visits in the last hour, and I haven't put on more than 10 kilometers on my vehicle. Like, there's competition everywhere, and you guys are killing it. So they were obviously doing things right. So I had the opportunity to see people that did things well and people that did things poorly. More often than not, a fishing guide that buys a fly shop because his back hurts and he's tired of rowing a boat doesn't have the business savvy to really run things smoothly. I did not have the business savvy. I did not have the education background. Like my education is in Kines. Like we talked about my thesis. It had nothing to do with e-commerce. It had nothing to do with economics, with branding, with marketing, with supply chain, all of the things that you need to run a retail business successfully. I was kind of too stubborn to fail. And so what might take someone that has that background an hour to do might take me 10 hours to do. Right. And so it's a slower process for me and my learning curve, it's steep because there's a lot to learn. Right. And it's, it's very scary when you're learning with real money. Right. And so that was one of the biggest challenges. And for me, the most important thing for when you walk into a fly shop is, you know, that there's going to be accurate, up-to-date local knowledge, not just of the fishery, not just of the flies and the equipment, all of it. Like how to, how to grow in the sport, how to evolve in the industry, how to, you know, purchase a rod, what's the best waders to buy. The only way that you have all of that knowledge is by immersing yourself in the sport. And so you're coming into a fly shop to talk to somebody that uses that rod all the time, that uses these flies, that caught these fish, that you know has been guiding, that's done all these things. Those are the people that you trust in a fly shop. But if they get trustworthy enough that everybody wants them in the fly shop, well, then you start to lose your time on the water. And what happens to so many fly shop owners is they get so busy that they don't spend time on the water anymore. And in the first few years I had the shop, that's why I said, like, I'm still guiding. I love guiding too much. And it's my connection to what's relevant, what people are using. This works for people. This doesn't. And so I had to be in the boat in my mind. It's really difficult to grow two completely different businesses. And it's really difficult to run a fly shop retail business when you're sitting in a drift boat. And especially with the hours that I often do in a drift boat where I'm spending way too many hours in a day and I'm not going to say it so then it pigeonholes me when someone's like, oh, 
he's going to row me for 17 hours. <laughs> right. But finding that balance has been really hard. COVID's been hard for everybody. It's been super difficult. But what it's done, it's taken away my traveling. So I'm not doing hosted travel anymore. I'm not traveling to do speaking presentations anymore. I'm not guiding anymore because it cut into our guiding so severely that I took myself out of the rotation and made sure that the guides that rely on that had those trips. So 100% of my focus suddenly became on nothing but the shop. So in our most challenging time in year, we saw the most growth because I was spending 18 to 19 hours a day on the business. I couldn't travel. I couldn't go visit family and friends. I didn't have a life. I have zero life. It, it's not exciting. Like, so that's why when I say like run, you need to understand how much work is involved that isn't fishing related. And if you're really good at all that stuff, you're not going to be on the water as much. And that's kind of what gave you the trust factor that people were going to come see you in the first place. So it's where you have to have a system of bringing in new blood and new people. And it's why I didn't, even with the guiding, like Nauto has been our head guide for so many years because I didn't want people to just come to outfly fishing because of Josh. Because Josh couldn't do more than, I mean, I've done 125, five to 126 trips in a season was the most I've ever done. It's a ludicrous number of trips. If you have a family and like a spouse or a significant other, you will not see them for your whole season. It's not advisable. It's not good for relationships. It's not good for family. It's great for your customers because they all want to fish with the guy that's been on the water more than anyone else has. And as a university student, that was kind of where everything started. And I don't want to resent this job because it is a great job. It is a great industry. I've met some incredible people. We're sitting here, you know, continents apart, talking because of this industry. So I appreciate this industry. I'm passionate about this industry, but there has to be a balance. And if you want to get into owning a fly shop, do it because you love business and you love running business. Not because you like fishing and you want to find a way that you could get paid to work in the fishing industry. Okay. Well, wow. We've covered a lot of ground. Um, I fully admit that I had intended to pick through the masterclass that you did with us and hit some of those points, but we've covered so much ground. Um, you can find the masterclass on, on the website. You can find it on your website. I'd rather you guys buy it through Josh because then... Josh uh, will be able to see the fruits of his labor that way. And they can do that. You, anyone listening who would like to take that class can go ahead and do that through Josh's website. Um, I think it's on the homepage yep. that might be changed at some point, but I'm sure it won't be hard to find. Yep. And Josh, I mean, you and I have known each other a long time. So there's lots to talk about probably off the record and maybe on another trip someday. Is there anything in particular though, right now that I've missed that you would like to add? Other than the masterclass thing that I've, in my head, that was kind of what I thought we would be talking a fair bit about. I didn't expect it would be any of my, like where I started from and any of that stuff. And so that caught me off guard and we went down a, a bit of a, a rabbit hole there. Um, I'm really good at tangents, not necessarily as good at staying on topic. Um, and I'm really good at timelines. So it's the perfect combination. <laughs> yeah, there we go. It's perfect. Yeah. If there's another time that we're going to talk about the masterclass stuff, that's great because I, I really have enjoyed that. And I think 
same as like seeing the progression that you've gone through in the industry. One of the progressions that I've really seen in the last few years is I really enjoy speaking and teaching the instruction stuff is what it's why like I really miss travel right now. Not because I just, I want to go fishing somewhere warm. That would be great, but I miss interacting with people when you're standing on a stage or you're standing in a room full of people that they're there because they want to learn as an instructor there's nothing to me more valuable than those light bulb moments when you see someone go oh really like i can't believe i didn't think of that or why has no one told me that i've been doing this for 10 years why did no one tell me that it's so simple and as an instructor i think those are the greatest moments and getting to see those in a boat for so many years was great but it was always just two people at a time And then when I started speaking more and giving presentations, and when you look out at a crowd of people and you see 40 people have an aha moment at the same time, it's so incredibly rewarding to see that. Same thing when I spent, you know, years trying to mentor one guide at a time and work with them. And then when we could get to the point that we had a course, and because there's a group of us together to see, you know, a room full of people that when they walked in the door, you had an incredible amount of respect for their skill set and their knowledge base already. And then to see those aha moments from those very bright individuals, there's nothing to me more satisfying than that. There, there's. It's been a long time since I caught a fish that was exciting as those moments. Well, on that note, I think that's the perfect opportunity to segue out of this episode, let you get some time to yourself. Um, we will reconvene. We've got a, an interactive question and answer session with you in June. Uh, and that's really cool because that is the sort of thing where we can see each other and we can talk and all that stuff. So to be continued there. And I just can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on and share all this. I really appreciate you doing this. And, I, and I've told you this before. And if you edit this out, you're in a lot of trouble. You have a gift for drawing stories out of people. Like you do a very good job of like, I had never listened to podcasts. I had done podcasts with Tom Rosenbauer and I'd never listened to one in my life. And I was like, I don't, and I, and your podcast was the first one I started listening to. And I got so wrapped up in people's stories because you do such a great job of helping people tell their story that I didn't plan on telling any of my story tonight. I thought we were talking about the masterclass. You draw that stuff out of people and it's, it's engaging and it's the, the why behind it, I think is very interesting to a lot of people in the industry. It's not just how to, it's Why? Why did you care? Why did you get interested in that? And you do an amazing job of digging and finding that why with people. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for giving me an opportunity to spend some time with you today. Always enjoy it, dear. Always. Thanks, John. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 